The final report of the Advisory Council on the Implementation of National Pharmacare was published in June 2019. It called for universal single-payer public pharmacare in Canada. Pharmacare looks to be an important issue for parties to address in the upcoming federal election. One strategy for considering how to fund pharmacare would be to consider which drugs offer the most value and adjusting co-payments based on drugs' value rather than according to a simple sliding scale. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm speaking with two experts in pharmacare economics who have published an analysis article in CMAJ. They're with me to explain the concept of value-based insurance design for pharmacare. Dr. Kai Young is joining me from Seattle, and Dr. Steve Morgan is joining me from Vancouver. Kai and Steve, thank you for joining me today on our podcast. Thanks for having us, Kirsten. So first, let's talk a bit about who you are and what you do. Kai, would you like to tell us? Sure. Yeah, I am a pharmacist and a pharmaceutical economist and an assistant scientific investigator at Kaiser Permanente, Washington Health Research Institute, which is based in Seattle, Washington. Um, and it's a nonprofit focused on making health and healthcare better for, for everyone. I myself do research in value-based insurance design and how insurance affects uh, patient healthcare use and costs. Steve, how about you? I'm a professor of health policy at the University of British Columbia and have spent uh, a little more than 20 years studying uh, prescription drug financing and access, in, mostly in the Canadian context, but also a little bit on uh, the global stage as well. So, Steve, in your long career, you've published quite a bit in CMAJ, and I know that you've spoken to my colleagues before on the CMAJ podcast. It's a topic, pharmacare, that's front of mind for many in Canada at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit about where we stand now regarding national pharmacare? Yeah, I think this is, a. it would be fair to say, it's a pretty exciting time uh, for Canada as it relates to the pharmacare question. Uh, pharmacare has been studied numerous times by various commissions and inquiries at the uh, federal level. But in the last couple of years, we've had two important reports come out, most notably just uh, last month, the report of the Advisory Council on the Implementation of National Pharmacare uh, came out. Sometimes you might refer to it as the Hoskins Council. Their report recommended as has virtually every major national commission going back to the 60s, that Canada adopt a universal, comprehensive, single-payer pharmacare system that worked much like Canadian Medicare does, but apply those principles of universality and accessibility uh, to prescription drugs in the community setting. Um, this is a very detailed report. It had a tremendous amount of um, specificity, if you will, around things like what would the federal rule be? How would we manage a national formulary? What are the necessary steps that would be taken to implement. So it's a really interesting report and creates an interesting time uh, because it was delivered literally days before Parliament adjourned for the summer. And of course, we know the writ will drop uh, sometime probably in August, if not very the very beginning of September for a federal election. So right now, we're at this interesting time where we've got these detailed reports. We have a lot of public and professional discourse around the idea of national pharmacare in Canada. And we await to see what the federal parties will make of this during the fall election. And 
we can expect that the, the NDP and Greens, as they've already indicated, will promise a universal comprehensive drug plan. The Conservatives, as soon as Eric Hoskins delivered his report, said that they would oppose such a program. So the only kind of holdout at this stage is to find out exactly what the Liberal Party will do. Uh, will they campaign on the recommendations of the Hoskins Council or, or will they do something else? So just to clarify, just thinking back to 2015, four years ago, is uh, Pharmacare one of the things that the Liberals ran on at that time? Yeah, interestingly enough, no. Um, and I, you know, I can say this having been in the area for quite a long time and, and advising political parties going back now for more than a decade. Um, the Liberals actually campaigned on a number of policies related to prescription drug pricing and availability that would have, if you will, made Pharmacare uh, more viable in terms of better regulation of prices, some streamlining of, of regulatory processes and whatnot. Um, but they actually didn't have uh, Pharmacare in the platform for tw in 2015, uh, much to the dismay of many people who thought that they might. Um, it, that was partly, I think, a political long game, that they were setting this up uh, through incremental changes that they were making that would make it possible for them to campaign possibly in 2019 as the party that is uh, sort of ready and able to implement this uh, long-recommended policy. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. So it seems that it's as likely as it's ever going to be that national pharmacare will happen or has a very good chance of happening. And it's a good idea for us to all be thinking about what form it should take. And there are different options, one of which, value-based insurance design, you discuss in depth in your article. Kai, can you tell us about value-based insurance design and how it differs from other ways of providing drug coverage? So typically, Canadian prescription drug benefits apply a flat copayment or coinsurance or deductible to filling any given prescription that does not vary across treatments. And this is true for both public and private plans, but we know that the treatments themselves do vary in value, right? And there's a rich body of literature uh, that demonstrates that when patients face out-of-pocket costs, they reduce their use of medicines. Um, and in some cases, even for important drug classes that could be potentially high value, such as anti-diabetic medicines. And in some cases, this can actually negatively impact right, the health of patients. And so, whereas traditionally, public plans in Canada have very out-of-pocket costs at the population level, right, meaning that plans may provide more generous coverage for vulnerable populations, like uh, those who are receiving social assistance or the elderly, um, a value-based insurance design or a VBIT approach applies an additional perspective in that it sets these out-of-pocket costs of a specific drug based on its estimated clinical and economic value, right? So not just on the demographics of the population itself, but actually on the value that the drug itself provides. Um, so for, for instance, a VBID plan might waive out-of-pocket costs for um, generic antihypertensive medications and perhaps impose a higher out-of-pocket cost for branded statins, right? And so the intent there is to make those higher value medicines more readily available and encourage use of those medications while at the same time steering patients away from lower value drugs. Has this approach been used elsewhere before in other jurisdictions or systems? Yeah, so principally in the United States, um, it's been applied quite a bit in the past say, decade and a half. Um, at the federal level, 
back in 2010, when we had the passage of the Affordable Care Act, um, part of the provisions of that act was to require health plans to include uh, certain preventive drugs and services without cost sharing, uh, such as certain generic statins, right? And more recently, the U.S. federal government has also charged the Medicare Advantage program, which is the managed care coverage plan that covers older adults in the United States, as well as the TRICARE plan, which is the coverage plan for uh, civilian personnel serving in the Department of Defense. Uh, both of those plans were charged by the federal government to begin pilot um, of VBIT programs that reduce cost sharing um, for certain targeted high value um, services, including some medications. Um, additionally, there's been a sizable sort of number of payers in the private space that have implemented this approach as well in the U.S. I think listeners might also be interested to know that there are a couple of international examples of, of uh, benefit design that, that do follow a, a value-based structure, roughly speaking. Uh, for instance, in France, uh, they don't use co-payments, but they have co-insurance on prescriptions, and the co-insurance rate is determined in part by the value of the medicines to the French national health system. Uh, similarly, in other European countries uh, like Germany and the Netherlands, there are value-based reimbursement limits that basically say within a therapeutic category, uh, the statutory plan will cover uh, some drugs at uh, high value, typically generic drugs, uh, fully, and patients would be responsible for incremental costs of other medicines within class. They, those are similar, although somewhat distinct, to the value-based insurance design uh, that we wrote about in this CMAJ article. So how do systems like this figure out what value is? Yeah, so I think there are different approaches, and value determination is quite important if you're going to set up a value-based insurance design approach. In the U.S., um, predominantly that's taken the approach of applying this reduction of co-payments, you know, uh, reduction of out-of-pocket costs for certain chronic conditions like diabetes or asthma or hypertension. Others have more selected group, I would say, have applied a more explicit estimation approach, um, for instance, using cost-effectiveness analysis to determine quantitatively what is the sort of dollars per quality-adjusted life years gained for a given drug and then setting co-payments associated with that. That's a little bit more rare. Um, in the you know, Hoskins report, they do make a statement about coverage of drugs uh, based on ones that offer good value for money. And in my interpretation, part of that consideration in differential out-of-pocket costs associated with drugs there where you have essential drugs covered at $2 co-payments and non-essential drugs recommended to be covered at $5 copayments, you use some list of, you know, um, that has been established elsewhere of what are, what are considered, you know, essential drugs, which I think more often is the case that they tend to be generic medications. And in terms of procedures, you know, you think about the decision-making structures that Canada currently uses for listing medicines on uh, public drug plan formularies. This is the kind of thing that you could envision in a national plan being done by, for instance, uh, CADETH, the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies and Health, possibly with input from this new Canadian drug agency that the 2019 budget has uh, put money aside for to enable Canada to uh, build a national formulary with a reasonable clinical input um, and possibly use those decision-making processes to 
establish, if you will, the tiers as to what, what qualifies as an essential medicine and what, what might be necessary but not necessarily essential. Okay, so a decade and a half that this has been used elsewhere, there must be evidence to show that the approach works or could be tweaked. What evidence is there? Yeah, so thus far, most of the evidence uh, in the United States comes from private plans that have waived or reduced out-of-pocket costs for certain maintenance medications to treat chronic conditions, um, you know, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, asthma, uh, those kind of conditions. And over periods of one to three years, in, in terms of study evaluation in the empirical literature, most studies have found um, increases of adherence in the order of anywhere from 1% to 15% increases in, in adherence. Um, the effects of this VBIT approach on health are less often measured, but I will say that there's one study um, led by Dr. Nitish Chaudhry, uh, who is a notable, notable Canadian physician and researcher who is now at Harvard. Um, so the study randomized um, privately insured patients who were discharged after a heart attack to free medications indicated for preventing subsequent cardiac events, right? And so the study found increases in adherence to treatment, um, not surprisingly, but then in addition, it also found reductions in the rates of total major vascular events, um, but no significant reduction in what was their primary outcome, which was the first major vascular event. Um, and so there's some, but not a complete signal of positive health effects there. If we applied this approach to national pharmacare in Canada, what might it look like and what might the outcomes be for us? Yeah, so I think that the Hoskins report makes similar recommendations to, as it pertains to this value-based insurance design concept, right? So, um, you know, it recommends it constructing a national formulary that covers drugs that offer good value for money. But within that, they recognize that with, within those drugs, there's still variation in value, right? So they make a distinction between coverage of essential medicines and all the other medicines that are still on the formulary. So essential medicines are recommended, you know, in the report to be ascribed to out-of-pocket cost of $2 per prescription versus the other medicines are, are recommended to have an out-of-pocket cost of $5. Um, in addition, there's a recommendation of uh, waiving co-payments for people and families who have various forms of uh, income assistance. Um, to me, what's interesting, I think, about the report and its application uh, to a Canadian context is that it creates an initial formulary that is in itself value-based, right? And then on top of that, it layers on a recognition of the importance of, you know, user fees or out-of-pocket costs, right? So it's important for revenue purposes and also in tempering inappropriate and low-value use. But at the same time, I think it recognizes that out-of-pocket costs can affect utilization in ways that are unintended. And therefore, the recommendation is to apply it with both demographic and drug-specific value considerations, recognizing that there is likely some value variation within drugs in the formulary. Um, I think one of the limitations in areas of debate is sort of what is the right level of out-of-pocket costs for those medicines in such a, you know, national pharmacare plan, right? The report, again, re recommends $2 copayments for essential medications and then $5 for other covered medicines. And this relatively low level of cost sharing is unlikely to um, be able to incentivize or steer medication use towards the sort of higher value medicines. And these out-of-pocket costs are also, you know, substantially lower than what 
most Canadians currently pay, right? And so in practice, would you actually try and increase these out-of-pocket costs in a, in a national pharma care system? Or, you know, would you consider applying other ways to manage utilization that is value-based? You know, for instance, you know, would you potentially apply, you know, as the report recommends, you know, uh, a prior authorization where um, there is a restriction based on some clinical criteria? Or uh, would you, in your construction of a national formulary, set a narrower set of drugs that is covered by the national formulary, thus ensuring that there's more sort of homogeneity in value within that set? What are the challenges? What could stand in the way of using this approach in our national pharmacare in Canada? You know, if I may, I think the, the first challenge is that we don't have national pharmacare yet. And, and I think that establishing the national pharmacare program, establishing some uh, standard that said that all Canadians would be covered by, by uh, four medicines on a national formulary, that's the first hurdle. And, and the 2019 federal election, I think, is going to be critical in determining whether we get past that, that stage of policy development. We've heard the recommendations for this program uh, dating all the way back to the 1960s, so one shouldn't necessarily hold their breath. However, we're as close as we've ever been to getting a national uh, pharmacare program started in this country. So the question might be if um, if the Liberals or NDP or Greens uh, were to form government or a coalition of those three parties were to form government, it's quite likely that we would start taking action on pharmacare, particularly given that the NDP and the Greens have very strongly signaled that they will go forward with such a program. In terms of the obstacles to actually applying value-based design, actually those progressive political parties might decide that the value-based insurance design is not consistent with you know, Canadian principles and values as it relates to our, our Medicare system, so to speak. And they might actually argue that National Pharmacare should have little or no co-payments regardless of what the value of the particular medicine is, if it's justified for coverage for one patient in, in any circumstance, it, it might be uh, justified for coverage and all. So there is the possible uh, desirability, if you will, of a completely co-payment-free system amongst progressive parties in Canada that might push a value-based design uh, to the side. There is also, uh, in the Canadian Federation, a desirability of having the system being reasonably simple, having a system that doesn't have too many areas of contention in terms of different views uh, by the different jurisdictions on whether a drug is high or low value uh, and what tier of a, of a co-payment threshold it might be assigned. Um, because as you can imagine, both at the advisory committee level uh, for the national formulary, but also at the federal, provincial, territorial negotiation level, um, the more tiers you have for co-payments, the, the more there may be opportunity for disagreement. So in the Canadian context, uh, it might be the case that the uh, insurance design moves forward with something much more streamlined. The Hoskins Council recommendations seem to be similar to that in the sense that there will be this essential medicines list as the first phase of national pharmacare and drugs on that list get the, the lower co-payment co and then you build beyond that. Um, and that 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 sort of logical and political um, advantage of s simplicity uh, may, may continue to play out as we negotiate between federal, provincial, and territorial governments. 
The issue of um, of the federal and provincial and territorial governments agreeing on something is always huge in, in Canadian healthcare. Um, we write about this in so many different contexts in the journal. Any other challenges that you can think of? Yeah, I think there are some additional implementation challenges, right? So applying VBID requires some process to estimate the value of these treatments, right? And there's different ways um, to do so. And because these estimates will affect actual patients and their access to their medicines, it's very important to get that right, right? So the estimates need to be accurate, they need to be precise, uh, the methods need to be sound, and the process itself needs to be fair and accountable, right? And so, and so there needs to be a decent amount of thought around that. And then um, if you consider, as was alluded to earlier, about this issue of potentially implementing a system that has higher uh, out-of-pocket costs than, than what was proposed, you do run into some challenges with um, supplementary payments that currently exist right, in the Canadian system. Right? So um, one of these supplementary payments is offered by manufacturers that are known as copayment coupons, uh, which are given by manufacturers to patients to cover the out-of-pocket costs that patients face uh, for, for the medications. And this may incentivize use of drugs not according to value, depending on what copayment coupons are offered. So for instance, um, they're, they're most often offered for, for branded medications rather than, than their generic counterparts. Um, similarly is this issue of considering um, the continued existence of private insurance under National Pharmacare. So if, if um, private insurance covers the copayments of drugs that are already listed under a national formulary, then this again wipes out the ability of out-of-pocket costs to steer patients toward higher value medicines. So some of these issues need additional consideration. If you consider this VBID approach in sort of the larger context of implementation of national pharmacare, I think what stakeholders and policymakers need to think through is how best to balance patient access to a wide list of drugs versus spending by payers and patients as a consequence of access. And so in this framework, then you can think of VBID as a way to allow listing of a wider set of drugs than would be allowed otherwise under a national formulary, but then still tempering planned spending and steering patients toward higher value choices. You know, in the Canadian context, when moving forward with a big major transformation of financing of medicines like Pharmacare might be, uh, governments, particularly treasury boards and departments of finance, are uh, awfully mindful of how much it's going to cost in terms of tax uh, collected to finance the system. And uh, what people don't perhaps realize is that even a, um, you know, Pharmacare program uh, implemented in a, in a moderate fashion would be funding, you know, 600 million or more prescriptions. And so, Departments of Finance look at that, and they look at the convention of public drug plans in Canada actually having co-payments on prescriptions, and they realize that, you know, a $5 co-payment on 600 million prescriptions is, is $3 billion in revenue towards the program. Those of us who study uh, health services research and health economics know that Co-payments are probably the, the least efficient and certainly the most inequitable way to raise revenue for a system. But because they are they are very common in Canada today, governments are likely to look at co-payments as a, a plausible 
uh, source of at least, you know, a couple of billion dollars worth of revenue for the program. And I think that's why the Hoskins Council does have co-payments. However low they are in this report, they do have co-payments on the prescriptions, which differs, I would say, from uh, a few other reports and recommendations like the National Forum on Health and even the Standing Committee on Health report in 2018. I, I, and I think it has to do with the fact that, that, that the Hoskins Council was working with both Health Canada but also the Federal Department of Finance on, you know, just how would this happen, how would the federal government contribute, and what are the sources of revenue. I really appreciate you taking the time to explain this analysis article to our listeners today. It's definitely worth a read. I hope that our listeners get a great deal out of this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. I've been speaking with Kai Young, a pharmacist and pharmaceutical economist at Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute in Seattle, Washington, and Steve Morgan, health economist and professor of health policy at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. To read the article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.